0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.
1: Carlos Pereira is a uh, graduate of Stanford as well as New Mexico. Um, University of New Mexico? Mexico? University of New Mexico. But it's been... Almost 20 years that he was uh, walking across campus as a student in our own uh, business school. He's now president and chief executive officer of MYOX, which I hope we hear a good bit about today. He's been in that job for five years. And his career between business school and becoming CEO of MYOX included a long stint uh, at Intel Corporation. So it is appropriate that this is the eve of Earth Day. Uh, So, how many of you were alive when the first Earth Day took place in 1970? All right, yeah, I I can, all right, good. So, we we, we are, I figured there was going to be the minority in the room. But it was a a tremendous um, impact from the first day it took place uh, 40 years ago tomorrow, but how appropriate in this seminar series, which celebrates entrepreneurship in all kinds of sectors, information technologies, medical technologies, social entrepreneurship, how appropriate we have uh, Carlos with us today to talk about uh, a clean tech or a green tech uh, company, so without further ado let 's welcome Carlos back to campus
0: thanks a lot, Tom. I appreciate it okay, so we uh, have a little bit of time together, and uh, first thing I want to say is uh, I want this really to be a discussion, so highly interactive, and we 're going to kick things off here in a second, but Um, The slide you see up here is just to remind me that I'm here to talk to you about three things. Uh, I'm going to share a little bit about uh, the story of my company, MYOX, and what we do and why we do it, and the stage of development that we're at, and kind of our aspirations if you will. Um, I'm going to talk to you about water, uh, not just because it's uh, Earth Week, but because that is the focus area for MYOX. But really, these two topics are only to give you context on the third topic, which is what I really want to talk to you about, which is entrepreneurship and clean tech entrepreneurship specifically. And the message, and if I was, I guess, to uh, summarize my message or give a title to this discussion, it would be clean tech needs entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs need clean tech. And I want to talk about why that is, and some of the impact that needs to happen uh, if we're to continue the qu- kind of quality of life that we've all enjoyed over the last couple of decades. So with that, um, one of the nice visuals of this besides the, the fact that we have the planet here, and I kind of like this idea of MYOX taking on the world, is that small uh, red thing you see underneath is uh, a product of ours, MYOX purifier pen. Uh, this is actually the same technology that is used in some of the world's leading water treatment facilities and it will take virtually any water and render it uh, safe to drink by EPA guidelines. It was actually developed for the US military uh, and quite a few soldiers actually use this out in the field. I think there's about 70,000 of these are so deployed. But you also can get this um, in a sporting goods store uh, as a consumer and people who like it are outdoor enthusiasts, hikers, backpackers, uh, world travelers, Peace Corps volunteers, those kinds of folks. Um, it's a, a relatively expensive product, about 140 bucks, because uh, it is military spec. So I have one of these as a giveaway to start out the equate, to start out the conversation. And lo and behold, in bending over, I have displaced one of my wonderful mics. But they told me I can go on with one mic. Um, these are two mics. These aren't two uh, jump starts in case I fall asleep up here.
1: We
0: can get you another mic if you want. It, it completely. I, I think we're okay. Okay, so I'll be more careful as I bend over. The uh, product comes in two forms. I'm actually going to reach down. There actually is a water bottle, biodegradable, that goes with this. And the product that I'm going to give away uh, is going to go to the person who can answer a quiz question. But to begin with, I just want a show of hands. How many people in here have started a company Uh, or have aspirations to start a company? How many of you are entrepreneurs, or want to be entrepreneurs? Great, so I'm talking to the right audience. And and the reason that Tom convinced me to do this is uh, because he said there's a lot of smart people who are going to help me figure out some of the issues I'm dealing with. So the first thing I want to do is just uh, by a show of hands, can anybody in here tell me, by percentage or by number, how many people on the planet today don't have access, regular access to clean, safe drinking water? Kind of stuff we put in our tap every day. Anybody by show of hands? Guesses are fine. I'm going to start right there you, in the uh, yeah, uh, burnt color. A billion? A billion. Anybody else? Have? That's pretty close. How about you in the white? Uh, four billion? Four billion. Wow. I'm glad that is not the answer. <laughs> I'm going to go with the first one. I know there's a, a couple of folks out here. But a billion is pretty close. It's actually... Um, About 1.2 billion, or about 20% of the world's population, uh, does not have access to clean, safe drinking water. So with that, you get a door prize. Um, You get the opportunity to trade that product in later. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance to swap it out. There's there's a decision yet that you have to to make before you get to keep that and walk away with it. But uh, for now, it's yours. And and the water bottle for sure is yours. So uh, to begin with, uh, as Tom mentioned, uh, it's great for me to be back on the Stanford campus and, and really when he asked me to do this I kind of came up with two feelings that still persist. One is I'm very excited about being here. Uh, and the reason I'm excited is I know there's a lot of entrepreneurial spirit and embers. I saw the show of hands. And if this discussion does um, anything to ignite any of those embers and give you a, a better sense of how to go forward with an entrepreneurial endeavor, clean tech or otherwise, uh, I personally will consider that a, a phenomenal success. So as Tom mentioned, I am very ambitious. So I hope to uh, see some really cool things happen from folks in this crowd. The second feeling, though, was one really of um, humility. I feel humble for being here. And, And the reason for that is I looked at the list and I watched some of the podcasts from some of the folks who've been here before. And it's an impressive who's who. For those of you who are just getting exposure to this program, we're talking about household names of Google and Intel and others. And a lot of really neat success stories that people were able to look back and talk about what made their endeavor successful, and all the lessons they learned. Um, so great, successful IPOs. MyOx is not there yet. We certainly have aspirations to do that and to make huge impact, both in the people we touch and in the financial success we generate. But we're still, at this stage, a very resource constrained, um, early stage company. To be sure, we've had a lot of success. We have some really neat customers and success stories I can talk to you about. Uh, And we have a world-class team. We have world-class investors. We've raised over $40 million to get this enterprise uh, moving in the right direction. Uh, And we have a lot of really positive momentum. But the perspective that you're getting from me today is really one of somebody who is still kind of in the battle, so to speak. So I can look back on some of the things, um, but I'm still looking forward and dealing with some of these issues. So take it for what it's worth. Uh, That is part of the setup. So let's jump into what is MYOX and, and what do we do? I've already told you we deal with water issues. Put real simply, MYOX purifies water. We make it safe to drink uh, or swim in or use industrial or do a whole host of other things. And when I mean purify, purify water, we take out or eliminate any of the viruses or bacteria or pathogens that would cause one to uh, be concerned or potentially have a health issue from coming into contact with that water. That's not what's unique about MYOX. There's a lot of ways to purify water. Quite frankly, you can boil water, and it does some of the things that MYOX does. It's how we do it that makes us unique. And the simple way to think about this is we use our technology and ordinary salt to create a disinfectant solution that then can be put into water, and it eliminates any of those pathogens that we would be concerned about. And our target market, quite frankly, is water, water treatment chemicals, chlorine specifically, but others as well. And there's about $20 billion annually spent on water treatment, equipment and chemicals each year, and about $5 billion of that are the chemicals that we're talking about replacing traditional chlorine in water treatment. Um, so I have a few slides, and they're all really visual, and they're just really to prompt me Uh, as much as just to give you a quick visual of what I'm talking about. But this is an example of a customer installation. And on the top you can see this happens to be a beverage manufacturer. It's one of the markets we sell into. People who are producing either bottled water or sodas or other beverages. And one of the first things they do is they actually purify the water. So they get it from a municipality or some other source and they want to make sure it's free of anything that will cause somebody to get sick. And they In this particular case, we're using a delivered chemical. Um, I'm not going to get into any technical terms. It's not relevant. But I can tell you that, besides being aesthetically not very pleasing, it really created a huge safety hazard for the employees associated with this facility. When they took out that system and put ours in on the bottom, it became a very elegant, clean solution. And I know it doesn't look particularly high tech, especially if you're in the back. Um, But trust me, there's about 20 patents or so that have gone into this technology uh... and a whole history uh... with the department of energy the u.s military and others um, developing this technology so long history and a lot of uh... intellectual property has gone into this and this is kind of uh, illustrative of why people buy from us there's really three reasons or three value propositions if you will that we provide customers the first is safety and i'm gonna come back to that in a second and talk about why traditional chemicals pose such a safety hazard and therefore an opportunity for myox to displace them. Um, The second one is quality. And I'm not going to get into this in detail, but um, suffice it to say that when you treat water with traditional chemicals, you can get the desired effect in one sense, but create a lot of undesired byproducts. Some of that is uh, in the form of carcinogens. Some is smell and taste and and odor issues that you might associate with, um, say, a swimming pool that chlorinous odor. Uh, our systems basically work in a way that eliminate a lot of those undesired attributes. But the third reason and the, and the key piece and a the key theme of all of this is we offer a value proposition of economics. That is, we save people money from how they were doing things before uh, to what it looks like once they use our equipment. And in the particular case of this example, I think they Uh, Paid for the system in less than a year, and over the span of a five to seven year lifespan, uh, 80% reduction in overall costs. So let me take a step back and talk to you about um, chlorine for a second, which again is my target market. I want to replace everywhere you use chlorine, in your swimming pools, in drinking water systems, in uh, beverage manufacturing, etc. But chlorine is um, a large market, and it's been around in water treatment for good reason. The graph that you see up here um, is really just to show you that we didn't always treat our water. And this is in the US, um, but unfortunately, you could actually apply the same uh, type of curve today to places that are not treating water uh, at the same level that we, we do here in the developed world. And it shows in the early 1900s that there was a very high rate of not only illness, but mortality, quite frankly. It means you got sick, potentially, and or could die from drinking water. And that happens today. So when we talk about 1.2 billion not having access to safe drinking water, that results in a couple of very alarming statistics. One is about 2.5 million people each year. The estimates range between 2 and, and 5, I think. A million people die. So that's about 1 in four in the Bay Area more or less each and every year from simply drinking bad water that causes them to get sick and ultimately die as a result of that illness I think even more alarming is estimates are that half one half of all hospital beds in the world at any given time are occupied by somebody or I'm sorry um, are occupied by somebody who drank bad water or didn't have access to sanitary conditions as a primary reason why they ended up in that hospital bed. So it's a huge health issue. And indeed, when we started chlorinating our water, and I don't know if you know this as a general rule, but it's not just in our swimming pools. It's in our drinking water that we actually put small trace amounts of chlorine to eliminate these viruses and bacteria. So if it's so good, why do we think at Myox that we can replace this and offer a value proposition? Well, one of these I've already talked to you about which is quite simply that chlorine is inherently really hazardous. In small trace amounts, it's very effective at what we want, but stored and transported in any appreciable quantities, it's a huge safety risk. And I'm not going to read this slide. I will just say that the New York Times article on the one side um, highlighted this issue a couple years ago when it said the most dangerous place in America was next to a chlorine facility. And the reason for that is it poses a serious risk of accident Uh, or intentional terrorism and in small trace amounts it actually does very nasty things to folks. Um, It's the main ingredient in mustard gas if you think about what happened in World War I Uh, and it does some pretty nasty things to your lungs. So it poses a huge safety risk and indeed to not only the communities but to the people who are actually operating these facilities, they would like to get rid of it and not have to get in safety gear and take all the precautions. So that presents us an opportunity. Um, Sorry, I'm going to stay on this for just a second longer. Um, The second one, though, is quality. A lot of folks don't like the chlorinous odors. They don't like the byproducts. Uh, They want less chemistry or chemical in their water. And MIOX really has a really unique value proposition there as well, meaning uh, if you were to swim in a pool, and we have lots of pools uh, that are using our, our system, You don't smell the chlorine. You don't get skin and eye irritation. Your eyes don't burn, those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, it comes down to cost. And that's one of the themes I want to really weave throughout this discussion is if you can't give people an economic value proposition, you're really not going to get a particularly large um, segment of the market. And so all of our energy has been on driving our cost down to give more economic savings to the customer. So I've talked a little bit about some of the customers. And the market that we're going after is anybody who's using chlorine. We're on uh, naval ships. We're, again, in the military. Uh, Soldiers use these uh, to get water out of streams or even, quite frankly, a dirty mud puddle to turn it into safe, drinkable water. We've been in municipalities for a number of years. So there's about 1,000 communities throughout the US that use our systems. And more uh, recently, we've started to get into high-end hotels and hospitals. Uh, and other resort properties in particular around water reuse which is another topic that I'm not going to get into today. Uh, we've been, we've uh, been introducing products into the beverage market which we showed you earlier um, and then the last area which isn't necessarily a market for us but is one of the reasons we exist is to deal with not only disaster relief situations but also the developing world and this is one of my favorite examples of a customer uh, it's actually a small Uh, school in Honduras, and we didn't sell this to the school. There was a partner, an NGO partner, uh, or nonprofit organization, who came in and said they wanted to do something around water treatment, got educated on systems, uh, purchased ours, and then went and took it to Honduras, and they've replicated this model. And one of the things that is exciting about this is that we have, our systems have dramatically improved the health and the quality of life for the folks in this village. But this organization's even smarter than that and smarter than we are. They didn't give the system to the to this small community. They went in and they trained them on how to do a water co-op. And so the end users have better, cheaper water. But they also created a water co-op that has jobs and sustainability. So they actually um, charge a nominal amount for that water. And, and as a result, can uh, not only maintain the system, but actually you have micro entrepreneurship going on. And uh, that is a phenomenally powerful tool. Um, Believe me, when you can get folks that can improve their quality of life, and your product is helping do that in two ways, it's really, really fulfilling. So I'm a little behind schedule. I'm going to move quickly and talk about why water. And uh, I'm going to rifle through some of this so if I don't hit on something or it doesn't quite make sense. You'll come back and you'll quiz me on it later in the questions. Um, I'm not going to read this at all. I just want to show you the blue and the yellow and orange colors this is a world map and really when you think about water which is a very complicated subject that we all take for granted there's two dimensions of water that I just want to uh, communicate to you. One is the availability or conversely the scarcity and that's what this is meant to represent and the other is quality which I'll talk about in a second. In terms of availability you have to think about this not only in terms of how much water you have but how much water you need or are using. And so, counterintuitively, there's a lot of areas that are very arid, meaning that it doesn't have much water, but there's not a high stress load. There's just not a lot of water usage. And conversely, there's places like the US that have a lot of water on relative terms, but we use so much for agriculture, for power. Um, drinking is actually a very small percentage of this, but for all these other reasons and manufacturing, and it puts a lot of stress on our systems. It means that we're depleting our aquifers, we're depleting our lakes, and if we don't figure out how to either reduce consumption or um, regen, or I'm sorry, water reuse, we're gonna run into some pretty serious issues, and indeed we already are. You see this in places like Southern California, um, Phoenix, Nevada, all these areas that have actually had a lot of development have very little water. One of the ones, and it's really hard to see on this because it's so small, but Florida, who would have thought Florida has a water issue? Tremendous water issue because most of the water there is unusable in its current form. Um, Just as a small aside, uh, I'm a true believer that there's really not a water scarcity issue net-net. It's really one of how much energy you have to put into the water to get it where you want it and, and the condition that you want it. So a lot more energy going into water to get it in the places that we want it, in the condition that we want it. So, I'm sorry, your name, who uh, guessed one billion, which was pretty close. I guess you're 20% margin of error. Drew. Uh, so I'm going to give you a, a choice. Wow. Okay, this is uh, a little bit different than what I thought because the other one spilled, but you get a choice. You can either drink this water or you can drink this water. And if you choose to drink this water, I get the pen back. And if you choose to drink this water, you can keep the pen. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I won't, I, won't, I won't walk you through that. Um, I do want to just quick, take a quick demo of the pen so you know how to use it. It's a personal device that uses lithium camera batteries, salt on the top, which is like our large systems. And the technology inherent in here is one of electrolysis. So we're taking uh, the salt molecule, sodium chloride, we're stripping away electrons in simplistic terms, and we're creating other chemicals. And at the end of the process, we have a very safe but powerful disinfectant that does everything that chlorine does, but it does it much better. And it's kind of uh, chlorine with peroxides is kind of the, the way to think of this. Um, normally what I would do is I would immerse this in water, get a little bit here. I've already done that process. And I would press a button, and we'll see if this works. Uh, you can see, perhaps some of you in the front row, a fizzing effect. It's kind of an Alka-Seltzer-like effect. That's actually just the hydrogen that's being liberated in the process. And now I have a safe but powerful disinfectant. And if I uh, have a stir, unfortunately, but I think over a couple minutes, um, that should actually help change that from a really nasty looking color to something that, that uh, Drew, even you might want to drink later on. We'll see. So that's kind of how the technology works on a large scale. We actually don't do this in little batches. We do this in high volumes. So water quality. Uh, is a big issue as well. And I'm going to move off of this pretty quickly. But this is a picture of actual tap water taken from a municipal system here in California. Uh, I know the Notre Dame folks are already kind of laughing how you guys got to drink this stuff. Um, it's actually, don't be too alarmed, it's actually Southern California, I think, that this community resides in. <laughs> um, but it's horrendous. It's horrifying. You would not want to drink this. And it's not just what you see in the water. It's what you actually don't see in the water that's going to cause you to get sick and potentially violently sick. This is an issue that people get um, increasingly. Um, there is a lot of confusion about it, to be sure. But when they did a recent Gallup poll and they asked people what are the concerns they have around the environment, water, drinking water pollution was number one, um, more than twice as often mentioned than global warming. So water is a big issue. And the last slide I have on this before I talk about clean tech entrepreneurship, which is the real focus of this, is water really sits at this intersection of these trade-offs. And the the example I'll give is if you go back a couple of years, you you can remember when we were talking about growing our way out of oil dependence. We were going to have enough corn to create enough ethanol that we didn't have to import oil at the rate that we were doing it. it. Turned out to be a not very well thought through idea because when you consider the amount of water and the amount of power you had to put into that system, to get something out, you had two, two problems. One, you were impacting agriculture and food, and two, there was actually a questionable return on that investment extraction, if you will. The bottom quote actually comes from some experts that have, uh, or at least one expert, who has looked at the China situation, that's ongoing economic development, and was quoted as saying, China, you can have more semiconductor factories or more food, but not both. Water is a limiting factor. So. Again, very complicated topic. Hopefully, I've, I've uh, touched on um, the major reasons why MyOx is focused at water. And it gets me to the third topic, which is the most important one, which is clean tech entrepreneurship and why entrepreneurs need clean tech and clean tech needs entrepreneurs. And I heard Tom or Professor Byers uh, talking earlier about how MyOx wants to achieve scale. I think that's a great way of putting it, but in my terms, The reason most people choose to be entrepreneurs is because they want to have an impact. They want to make some kind of impression. And just as a quick uh, digression, impact really has a couple of key dimensions. And what I mean is you can have a very profound impact on a small number of people and have a significant impact. Or you can have a very small impact, but a very broad reach, and also create uh, quite an impact. in reality, and one of the reasons I think clean tech is so compelling, is what a lot of entrepreneurs look to do is have world changing ideas on a very large basis or platform. And clean tech just flat out offers more of these opportunities than just about any other technology area that I can think of. Or put in completely different terms, does the world need faster downloads? Probably not. We certainly appreciate them. Do we need better social networking sites? Probably don't need them. Do we often value them? Very highly, of course. But we do need power. We do need water. We need these things to continue the quality of life. So there really aren't um, small plays. There may be niche plays, but there really aren't that many small plays in the whole cleantech environment. And I chose water because I could not find something that I thought had Uh, was in more need of having a real significant impact. I keep wanting to go down to this last slide, and there actually isn't one. It's just a wrap-up slide, so um, I apologize. So with that, let me tell you that I think cleantech entrepreneurship is both a lot easier on the front end and a lot harder on the back end than other forms of entrepreneurship. And let me explain that. And I think the differences in what I'm about to tell you is relevant, particularly if you're thinking about founding a clean tech company or following somebody into a clean tech company. You should, you should do it with eyes wide open. It's easier for that first reason. It's because entrepreneurs want to have an impact, uh, and because you as an entrepreneur or as a founder or as a leader within an entrepreneurial company, that's not enough. You need to attract a team that's equally capable and motivated to want to have that impact and share in that vision. And when you have a clean tech idea, it's usually easier to have that kind of compelling reach. And I'll give you a personal example of this. Several years ago, when I started at MYOX, I knew I needed a really high-quality product development person. And I knew exactly who I wanted. It was somebody I had worked with at Intel, um, really well qualified young man, uh, three technical technical degrees from MIT. I did not hold that against him, it wasn't Stanford or, or Notre Dame. But just a really talented individual I had worked with, and I knew he had the skills and the attitude that would be critical to us at MyOx. One small problem was he was already out of Intel working for a small but very high profile, well funded solar company. And I approached this person on a personal relationship and I said, Hey, come take a look. And he spent an afternoon, and at the end, he said, I love the technology, I really like the team, I'd really like to work with you again. I cannot leave the solar company. We're doing world-changing things, and I have a positive social impact. And thank you very much. It's not going to work out. Um, Starting to, from the bottom up. So I gave him one of these pens, and three months later, he came back and he said, hey, is that opportunity still available? I jumped at the chance, I hired him, and he's been tremendously key to our success since. But later on, I learned what had happened. He got hooked. And the way he got hooked was, he went to South America with his family and lived in a situation where he did not have access to drinking water on a daily basis. His was the only family that did not get sick over a couple of weeks, and he started not only treating his family's water, but that of the communities that he was in. And he saw firsthand the kind of impact that could have. So he came back, and later on I actually learned that that solar company had offered him more money, but we gave him something that they couldn't, which was an even bigger emotional or moral paycheck, if you will, in the equation. And so to the degree that you want to have an earth or world-changing idea, it's great that you can enlist other folks. And you just need to be aware of that power, because it is a really powerful mechanism. People want to make a positive impact, at least entrepreneurs. So I could go on about all the neat positive aspects, but let me give you a couple of the downsides as well, because there are some downsides. And the simplest way to put this is, It all comes down to cost. Um, I wish the world worked in a way that we all bought the products that made the most sense for all of us. But at the end of the day, there's a financial impact. And a lot of people forget that in clean tech. They come up with these world-changing ideas, and folks say, hey, I want to go follow that. I'm compelled. And nobody ever stops to think about the fact that it's twice as expensive uh, and has all kinds of other complications, and people are just not going to buy it, at least not in mass quantity. You can always find some people, by the way. I uh, uh, you know, kind of sum it up this way. Some people are willing to pay more to get less, if it's the right thing to do. But most people want it the inverse, right? We all want it the inverse. Give me more and let me pay less. And that's really why we've had to focus on having a really key economic value proposition. Um, I was at a press uh, event last night with a solar company and a solid state lighting company and about 10 people from the press. And I can tell you right now that there's just a lot of hype and a lot of confusion around clean tech. People really, they hear the term or green tech or uh, environmental, environmentally sound and safe, and they get all excited, and then they find out, well, it costs twice as much or three times as much, and then you know, that dissipates very quickly. And I'm glad to say the two other companies I was with, like Myox, were really focused on how do you do things better, but how do you also make it cheaper? And that's the only way you're going to get folks to convert or you're going to subsidize it, or you're going to regulate it, and that leads to a whole different set of issues in clean tech, uh, which I won't get into. But let me just say that the uh, often clumsy hand of the government is just something that you have to contend with in clean tech more than in most uh, other entrepreneurial endeavors, and, and be prepared for that. And by the way, I think that's been a shock to some of the venture community that's invested. That all of a sudden, not only do you have to pay attention to regulation, you may actually have to go influence it, and uh, that holds, has a whole set of Another set of implications. So there's a couple of real downsides um, to clean tech. And the fact of the matter is the one that I haven't hit upon yet uh, that I'll share with you now is you have a lot of momentum in these industries. And it's really hard to go change people's perspective. Um, I think solar's done a great job, again, because of uh, a lot of uh, regulatory and publicity reasons. But even that faces a very steep uphill battle. In our particular industry, um, we have folks that have been doing it the same way for years and years and years, and getting people to change when they've done it this way for 20 or 30 years is just difficult. And the, the quick personal anecdote I'll share with you on this is when I first took over at Myox, and I'm in the water industry, um, I had the opportunity to, or I was invited to go to a trade association where there were, there were going to be executives, about 30, from other water companies, from really small to GE. Actually, I think there was actually very few small companies. There were mostly GE and Siemens and ITT and people like that. So I jumped at the chance. It was in Chicago in the middle of the winter, but I really wanted to go network with all these fellow executives in the water industry. And when I got there, we did intros. And within about 10 people, I realized two things. One was everybody else knew everybody. So like all the people in this room knowing everybody else, and I'm the new entrant. And the next least experienced person in the industry had 26 years. So you can imagine this is a little bit like you know oil and water. And they had some ideas and some tenets that I didn't buy into, and I had some ideas and tenets that they certainly didn't buy into. So it's just that momentum of change. So with all of that, before I get into the questions, I just want to contend and pose to you that I think the positives of clean tech far outweigh the negatives. And it's for that same reason, that same compelling reason to want to make a difference. Um, when you start a, an endeavor, and whether it's a clean tech endeavor or it's an IT, or a SaaS company, whatever it is that you think you want to start up, it is going to be tough. There are going to be days where you think the whole world has conspired against you. There are going to be days like I have where I get out of bed and I think, oh my God, we're heading off a cliff. It's just the way it is. When you have a small enterprise, it's very fragile. And... Um, It's those um, reminders that you get from time to time that keep you in the game, and keep you fighting, and keep you working crazy hours, and traveling all over the world, et cetera. And sometimes it happens in the form of a key customer win. And we've had some of those. And actually, I was fortunate to have a really good um, stretch over the last several months. We'll get a big order, and you breathe a sigh of relief. They usually last about an hour or two. Um, And then the investors remind you that that's now the new expectation. Um, but sometimes you just get reminded of this when other people come in and see the value that you can bring. And the last story that I'll share with you was a few months ago, actually I guess it's now about six months ago because it was in uh, 2009 when you know things were still kind of shaky for us in, in terms of some of the customer orders that had been delayed. Um, we got a house call or a company call from a doctor. And the situation was, this is a personal physician of one of our employees whose spouse was pregnant. And they explained what Myox was doing, and the doctor said, hey, I'd love to come in and just get a tour. So this um, doctor came in and was looking at some of our new products, and she remarked to the employee who was giving the tour, wow, you must be really proud to work at Myox. And I was kind of standing over there. It was in our labs. And so it really caught my attention. I thought, well, that's an interesting comment. I wonder how you know, my employee is going to respond. And they looked at the doctor, and they said, well, yes, I am very proud to work at Myox. But I'm curious, why do you say that? And they said, well, I became a doctor to save lives. And I can do that one at a time. But the products that you've created and are creating can save thousands and even millions. So talk about an energy uh, recharger. So with that, I want to have Q&A. And I took a few more minutes than I thought. But I want to close just the formal remarks with a quote, and it's not from a clean tech company. It's actually from a company I, I worked with for a number of years, as as Tom mentioned. And this is the only slide I'll read, which is, don't be encumbered by history. Go out and create something wonderful. And uh, Bob Noyce certainly did that at Intel. Uh, it's one of the things I'm very proud of, is my time at Intel. It really, in my mind, um, wasn't about PCs. It was about enabling people to get information. So with that, I'm going to stay away from the Notre Dame side, and no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I just, you know, want to have questions and discussions, and we have a few minutes, so what do you guys think about this? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes? Okay, so I know one of the um, problems with third world countries and water infrastructure is maintenance, and I was mm-hmm. just wondering, like, what sort of, I mean, obviously it doesn't look like that requires much maintenance, but I was just wondering. You know, Yeah, the question is, um, our product or water systems in general could require maintenance. And in the developing world, what does that look like? Um, One of the neat things about our product is the only source of feedstock it requires is salt. And salt's pretty ubiquitously available. It wasn't always that way, but today you can find it just about anywhere. And then the ongoing maintenance of the systems can be very simple. It doesn't work that way in our high-end systems, but we do have uh, units that are really designed to run off of solar, um, that are really designed for that type of environment and require very minimal maintenance. But you still want somebody to watch the system, to continue to make sure you're giving it um, you know, an examination and, and taking care of it, if you will. And that's one of the reasons I like this Honduras example is there's countless examples of people not just in water but in other areas solving somebody's problem and walking away and six months later that problem is right back. And that's really one of the the fundamentals I believe in. You have to couple this with um, micro enterprise and other things to get people to really change their behaviors. But from a technology standpoint it's pretty simple. There was a question over here. Yes. Well, how do you
1: align your um, corporate
0: strategy with non-market factors? I guess there are a lot of uh, non-market issues within the industry that you are in. You have to be really cautious and work actually Uh, around. Let me repeat the question make sure I understand it as well. Um, So how do we deal in our strategy with non-market factors?
1: product and you know, try to make a better life for the uh, citizens. Yes. Have you ever thought about... Um,
0: yes, we have. Know. And, and I, I think your question when I heard the second part is, um, would we, example, for example, look at a government-related opportunity that may not be as yeah. lucrative as an industrial opportunity? We do that all the time. We're very conscientious that it's a balance and that if we don't grow the company, Our ability to have resources is limited to go do some of the other things, but um, I'll give you two examples. One, post-Katrina, we had a lot of employees that I was not going to say no to them. They just came together and said, we want to go help. And how we did that was we donated a small amount of equipment, but our partners, our distribution partners and others bought our equipment to go donate. And then we went a step further and we said, we've learned this from previous disasters when we helped post-Katrina, post-tsunami in Indonesia it's not enough to get our equipment there you actually have to make sure somebody's using it. So in the Haiti situation we partnered with key organizations that we knew could get the equipment from the plane to the hospitals to actually put it in use. Um, so it did take a lot of time and energy but it was you know we were just channeling that energy. Uh, to the Another example for the government we actually just sold 170 systems, so there are 170 communities in Mexico, one of the poorest regions, that will get state-of-the-art water treatment, but the government was one part of it, and a key corporate player partner, um, a, a Coca-Cola bottler, was the other group in making that happen. But we do, I mean, you know, I, it, it it is an important part of it, and you know, and uh, You know, your investors are always going to push you to do what's the best utility of the resources that you have at hand, but you always have to look at it in in terms of it's not just a one-time deal. You're going to have uh, ongoing opportunities. And a lot of these relationships where we're doing, we call it doing well by doing good, when we're doing something that may seem to be very humanitarian or social in, in nature, it leads us to some really phenomenal business opportunities. And I think people forget that. It's not an either or. And I wasn't around then, but when I hear about Hewlett-Packard and how it started, it really had that same kind of mindset. So, you know, it's not just about the profits and it's not just about the impact. You really have to have both pieces kind of working together. And, you know, sometimes you have tough trade-offs, but I would have loved to have donated more equipment to Haiti. But the small amount that we did, I know impacted probably hundreds of thousands of lives. So, great question.
1: Is Myox playing a role in,
0: reducing water consumption as well as in you know uh expediting purification it it is and it, the question is is MYOX playing a role in uh um I'll call it water reuse so I'm not sure if that's a term you use but um consumption, reducing consumption yeah yeah and, and and gray water too like yeah water. It, it, it's all part of it's the part of the same, same equation. equation and I, and i to be clear I can't think of a couple of examples where we're actually reducing water usage. I'll give you one. In the beverage example, um, that picture wasn't uh, of this particular part of the process, but we have now bottlers of sodas and bottled water who are using using our systems to sterilize their process, clean in place, if you will. And by using our systems, they can do this in 15 minutes instead of 45 minutes, and that's 30 minutes of water that they're not flushing through the system that's also heated up. So we're reducing water usage in that case. But more often, to your question, we're using water reuse systems, that instead of taking water in and then dumping it to the environment, what folks are getting smart about is taking that water and using it, retreating it, and then using it for other purposes. We have uh, a Hyatt resort that I love to talk about because it takes water, treats it with our systems, saves tremendous energy as well as water, because they don't have to pump that water from one place to another. They already have it. They just use our systems to treat it. And then they water the golf course and all the agriculture on the property. And it's, when you do the economics on that, it's amazing, because it's not just the chemical you're saving. You don't have to pump the water, which is really one of the big energy consumption uh, aspects of water. So yeah, very... And, and increasingly that's part of our strategy going forward, quite frankly. You're going to see us on uh, uh, water reuse systems, even capturing rainwater harvesting and making it safe. A big area and opportunity. Does that answer your question? Okay, thanks. In the back?
1: Yeah. So, what do you see as uh, the main obstacle in deploying this technology worldwide to places where they don't have drinking water? Is it pricing? Is it accessibility? Is it government policy? All
0: yeah, the question is what is the limiting factor to getting this deployed uh, worldwide and, and even more aggressively? Um, You could be on my board of directors. Uh, I get that question all the time. Um, There's really a couple things, and and some of which are in our control and some of which are not. The one that's in our control and that we're working very aggressively to deal with now is it's about finding channel partnerships. I'll give you an example. We had um, really good success in the U.S. and in Mexico in Beverage, which I talked about earlier a couple of times, and then that same corporate player said, we love this. Now we want to go take this to Europe and East Europe and other places, uh, even in the Middle East. And we said, whoa, we're not prepared to go do that just yet. And so we had to go find partners, and we're in the process of doing that, who can actually install and maintain. So it's not just the sales component, but you actually have to have somebody who installs the system and maintains the system, et cetera. Um, And so it's really having those kind of channel partners, uh, if you will, in place. But, But our strategy has been find the customer, prove that the application works, and then let's bring the channel partner or the distribution strategy to the table um, where somebody sees that there's a real opportunity and there's customers who want the product. Second, yeah, follow-on question?
1: Yeah, so presumably there's going to be companies like GE or you know, Siemens who already have existing channels in yes. those countries, right? Have you thought about licensing technology to them?
0: OK, now I'm getting to get worried that you're actually sitting in our board secretively. Um, The question is, are we actually talking to large players like GE and Siemens about licensing the product? Uh, And indeed we are, Um, not to be specific about it because this is work um, that's still in process. But uh, yeah, for us we know that we cannot get to all these markets simultaneously and that one of the best ways to do it might be to license uh, as well as to, to provide distribution access. Um, Siemens is a company we're very close to. Uh, several of our key executives and one of our board members um, were part of the Siemens network at one stage. But we, you know, we talk with all of those large companies, and that that is a key part. And that's one of the issues of, of scaling up a clean tech company, right? It also gets to that earlier comment that I said, you know, people like to buy from people they know, and, and clean tech industry um, industries in general because of that momentum factor I talked about, it's even more important to think about who you're selling with or through because their brand name actually means a lot in some cases. Not just because of who they are, but because people are resistant to change. But if it's good enough for GE or if it's good enough for Veolia or it's good enough for Siemens, uh, you know, then it says something about the product quality. So that is a big part of the strategy. Yeah, in the back. Yeah. Just curious how you think about in your sector of the clean tech industry you're, you're in a sector that you have the ability to have a technology that can be tested in, in a relatively low capital intensive manner relative to the rest of sort of clean tech. Mm-hmm. and I'm just curious how you think about in terms of actually testing a technology and where you'd want to focus have you thought about those two things in the sense of you know it cost uh, it could cost a hundred million dollars to test a brand new solar technology. It mm-hmm. still has the same binary outcome of go or no-go versus something where you can uh, test it on a small scale. So when you say, you know, you encourage, when you think of, like, long-term sustainability in the next step of the sector, can you comment on how you think the rest of the clean tech industry sure, takes sure. that step? Um, I'm going uh, to repeat your question, and I'm, I, I may modify it a little bit, so give me liberty, and if I'm not answering just uh, let me know. Um, I, I think the question was, it seems like, and I think if this is your assertion, this is correct, that our technology isn't as capital intensive to test in terms of the development of the technology. It actually has a lot of rigorous testing, though, in the sense, probably more than is apparent, because it goes into EPA drinking water standards. And so the military tested this extensively. Um, For us to have public drinking water system usage here in the US, there's a tremendous amount of regulatory oversight and hurdles that you have to go through. So it is a very rigorously tested device probably much more than solar and hydro and other energy related um, cleantech devices that I can think of in terms of is it um, certified, if you will, by the relative agencies. Um, The other part of your question, though, I think is spot on, which is to develop the technology wasn't as capital intensive as, say, developing a new solar fab, where you not only have the technology issues to deal with, you also have the capital intensity associated with ramping up production. And I think that's one of the things that the investment community is coming face to face with in clean tech very quickly is if you look at the way the venture capital community is set up for the most part, and there are exceptions, it's really set up to take smaller bites at the apple, five million, you know, let's see this with a couple hundred thousand or a million, get to proof of concept then put a couple million in, then we'll get the revenue and then we'll put a couple more million in, and you know, you have ten million in for a company that, you know, if your Facebook is worth billions, but if you're, you know, kind of a normal trajectory, maybe you're you know, worth two or three or four or five times that, you a know, good outcome. And you look at a solar company, which might take 200 million on an extreme case to get ramped up, and then only to find out you're not cost competitive, et cetera, that's a really big investment chunk. And I think that has already played itself out to some degree, and the investment community is getting more thoughtful about how to either share that cost with either large companies or governments or others, um, or how to figure out novel ways to get to proof points Quicker and more inexpensively, but that is one of the big hurdles in clean tech. Is you just got to look at the money in versus the money out, and if you know, and if the bet is a billion dollar bet, it better be a ten billion dollar potential return because, you know, it doesn't make sense otherwise. But that's a great question, a great observation about clean tech.
1: Yeah, I've got a question for you on pricing. Sure. Um, just going back to I think it was your second slide where you had the treatment system that the company had installed. Um, <laughs>
0: And you said that the payback time for that system was less than a year, correct? And that the company had an eighty percent reduction in costs over a five-seven to seven year period. But you also said during your presentation that the selling point for uh, your product is that it's better quality, it's better quality over the current existing systems. So I'm really wondering about the pricing. That it you really know, um, it's a it, yeah. The question is. If we provide this payback period of, a, of a, a year or two, or we save huge costs over the life of the product, um, at the same time we're offering quality enhancements and safety enhancements. Are, you didn't say it, but I'm interpreting your question to me. Are we maybe leaving money on the table around pricing? And the answer to that is sometimes, just to get the product into a new application or a new customer base. So we are aggressive in our pricing in some ways. And we want to pass a lot of economic um, incentive, if you will, to the customer. Um, but there are other times where um, uh, flat out that's not the case and we'll, um, we'll structure the deal in a particular market where we know there's a really strong need and we can price accordingly. Um, but yeah, you, you have to give an economic incentive. And the longer or more entrenched the industry you're trying to displace, the bigger that price advantage has to be. And I had a rule of thumb that was given to me years ago by somebody uh, much more successful than me, he had I think six or seven successful IPOs at the time, uh, and I was a CFO, and he was a CEO, and he said, "Look, if you want somebody to change their behavior, you got to be twice as good at half the cost. It's not as good. It's not enough to be twice as good at the same cost. You have to be twice as good at half the cost, which kind of gives you a rough 4x better mindset. I'm not sure if you know you can distill everything down that way, but." Um, I truly believe that. If you want to get more than the early adopters, more than those first few folks, and there are some, you know, some people who actually pay more if they realize there's a benefit. And, and some of our early customers were like that. They didn't get any economic payback, but they knew they had a huge safety benefit or they had a concern about the environment or about their worker safety or whatever it might be, and they still paid that premium. But that's not how you get the mass markets. Let me just, uh, I think, a couple more questions if I'm trying to keep to the, two more, Two more questions, so I'll get to you one second. So... Yes, in the white. Could
1: you explain how the company was founded? Did you tinker in your garage? Did you get a license God. to say like Sanford or? I was hoping to avoid
0: that question. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, it's a great question. How, what's the origins of the company? How did it start? Um, was I tinkering in my garage, kind of like uh, you know, Steve and Steve with Apple, um, or a lot of these stories we read about? Um, the simple answer is no. Um, I'm actually not even the founder of the company. And the company itself started many years before I joined it. It was really a bunch of um, ex-Los Alamos labs scientists who were working for the government doing some novel research funded by the Department of Energy and the military. And they came across this technology and this product, and they started doing what good engineers do. They started building some and selling some and building more and selling more. Uh, and um, I came across it, and it was very much focused at military and government applications. And so one of the things that I kind of think about as a parallel, I didn't say this earlier, but um, in the market sense, I, I think one of the reasons we may really succeed in a phenomenal way is we're kind of like a cell phone is to telecommunications in water treatment. We take the whole equation and we push it out to the end user, and we give them the power to create what they need when they need it, but to your origin question, we're kind of like lithium batteries. If you look at a lot of technologies, they started with real military applications and then eventually found their way into the you know, industrial or commercial sector and then ultimately even to the consumer sector. And we're kind of following that path. The technology did incubate for a number of years, so it's not quite as sexy as uh, I was sitting there with a couple of uh, really smart folks and tinkering. Um, I came across the company at Intersect at a time where it was really looking to go a commercial path And and I got very excited about it. So, last question. Two questions. questions. So, last two questions. One is is sort of maybe to help the room get some ideas for social entrepreneurship. So, I'll ask them first. Okay. So, the largest growth area for water technology, for me, it's in desalination. But Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, because that would probably do the most to, you know, uh, take care of the stress points a little bit. I'd like to hear your thoughts on where the largest growth, not, not where the largest market is today, but where the largest growth area and what technology is going to be. Um, let me answer that one first, and then you said you had a second one, or maybe even a part B to that. I, I think the question is from an environmental impact and water specifically, isn't desalination one of the biggest opportunities to unlock water and make it more available and to solve some of the scarcity equation? Uh, I think the answer, in, my short answer is no. Uh, which might be surprising. Um, but it's not that desalination doesn't have a play. It's you have to remember and start from the big picture. Um, the world has plenty of water, but about two, uh, sorry, 97% of it is tied up in the oceans. About another 2% is tied up in glaciers and ice caps. And so of the total available water, only 1% is kind of available for us to use. So a really easy way to think about unlocking more is go to the oceans and desalinate. Well, there's two problems with that. One is it's very energy intensive, even today with some of the technology, so you have to put even more energy in to get that water. Um, And then if you want to take it any place besides the coast, you have another issue. But for a moment, let's just say there's a lot of problems you can solve on coastal cities with desalination. Um, You also have to do something with that brine, and that is an environmental issue. And I think um, I am pro-desalination, and we have some of our systems that sit behind desalination plants to do the final disinfection. But today's desalination technologies, as they are, are certainly not enough to solve the problem. And we have to think about the consumption side and the reuse side, because it's actually a lot cheaper to take water that you use once and then retreat it for use than it is to take salt water and make it ready for use. It's just much more economical. So desal has a play. And I think there's some really exciting desal companies uh, and folks who can do it with less money, which is less energy. Um, that's part of the equation, but you also have to solve what do you do with the brine that you get from that, and pumping it back into the ocean um, ha- has a whole set of issues and implications as well.
1: And, one, one quick question, or yeah. otherwise, take it offline. Sure. Oh, yeah.
0: Just a second. Yeah, I had one quick yeah, question one. about Thank you. Go ahead. Your competing technologies, just like you mentioned Siemens, and I think they're doing a lot in UV and some of those and uh I just read that uh, New York City they just did a big UV installation or something like that. How does your thing complement or compete with the UV and, and, and those in Asia? Yeah, great. So and this is a curious question. Yeah, there's uh, you obviously know a lot about water treatment. And there, are, yeah, well, you, you know, more than the reporters I was talking with last night, so that's good. Um, the, uh, I mean, it's very bad. There's um, a lot of technology that do water treatment from filtration and desalination is kind of an ultrafiltration or reverse osmosis process often. Um, UV and ozonation and others. Ours is attacking the chemical side of the equation and replacing it with a better solution. Um, There are some systems where we are behind UV and help to keep UV free from uh, or operating better Uh, or sometimes we actually because UV can do some really nice things without chemical you still haven't solved the whole equation because you haven't prevented the recontamination of that water. And so ironically, in the US at least, UV is a really strong play in wastewater. It really doesn't have as strong a hold in drinking water um, because it doesn't prevent the recontamination. But UV is a great technology. And again, like Desal, if any of you are going to go create a really um, low power um, UV um, solid state system, uh, I'd love to talk to you because we could probably put it to good use. And we are partnering with a lot of UV companies um, and we partner a lot with um, membrane companies. Um, actually, no ozonation companies right now. But we did look at buying one once, but it's another. All
1: right. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you.
0: OK. You have been listening to the Draper fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program.